Hi, I'm Mary Pollard, a partner at Portland focused on sustainability. Today, I'm joined by the FT's US editor-at-large, Gillian Tett, who famously foresaw the financial crisis, to talk about what to expect from COP26 as it kicks off this week in Glasgow. We'll be getting out our crystal balls and taking our best guess at what will happen as the events unfold. This is To The Point. Okay, so let's get started. What is COP26 and why does it matter? For those of you not down with the lingo, the UK and Italy are co-hosts of the 26th Conference of the Parties from the UN, hence COP. It's in Glasgow. It was postponed last year due to COVID, but now nearly 200 countries are sending delegations of negotiators to work through the night to come up with a plan for climate change. Paris was widely considered a success back in 2015, but it only set out an ambition. Glasgow now has the trickier task of getting people to actually do something about climate change. And why does it matter? Because we're running out of time. This is arguably one of the last chances to meaningfully address climate change and prevent some of the most scary possibilities that the planet faces. The stated aim is that we need to keep 1.5 alive. We'll come to what that means, but essentially we're trying to limit the level of global warming below completely terrifying devastation to merely significantly damaging. That would be my take in a nutshell. Did I miss anything, Gillian? Nope, that seems pretty comprehensive. I guess the key point to stress is that COP26 was really established as an intergovernmental debating forum and commitment forum. Um, It was created, you know, on the back of the Paris Climate Change Accord a few years ago, where essentially governments came together and said they were going to take collective action to both transfer resources from the developed world to the developing world to help the transition to occur globally, um, but also to ensure that everyone made their own commitments about how they were going to reduce emissions. So it's a governmental group. However, on the back of COP, now there's a lot of private sector activity. And so what's going to happen with COP26 in Glasgow is going to be as much about the private sector as about the public sector. That's a great place to start. The stated aim is to keep 1.5 alive. In the next two weeks, do you think that they will succeed? I am very pessimistic because the stated aim is indeed to try and keep 1.5 alive, to be aiming for that. On current trajectory, it seems very unlikely that they're going to hit that. And that is pretty scary in terms of what it means for climate change and the planet overall. Um, But we have to keep talking about 1.5 because if we keep aiming for 1.5 and trying to keep that alive, we have a better chance of not getting to four. And um, the reality is that on the current trajectory, 2.6, 2.7 is where people think we're heading. Um, It could actually be even worse than that because, unfortunately, what you're seeing right now in the emerging markets, the growing recognition of the need to bootstrap their own energy systems. They are increasingly using fossil fuels to do that. You've just seen countries like China coming out and saying they're going to expand, not shrink their use of coal in the next few years because of this energy crisis. And we don't yet have either the technology available to provide alluring alternatives to fossil fuels for the emerging markets, nor do we have the developed world having offered meaningful commitments to help the emerging markets transition, nor, frankly, do we even have enough consensus inside the developed world to actually take care of their own emissions. So everyone has to keep trying to keep 1.5 alive, but realistically, in order to hit three, not five. 
I think that's a very sensible evaluation. I try to be more optimistic, not quite Boris level optimist, but nonetheless optimistic. There are very clear sort of softer areas of focus in some ways around coal, cars, cash and trees. And I think progress will be made against those sort of easier, lower hanging fruit. But whether that ladders up to being enough to actually deliver on the, let's be honest, reasonably vague promise of keeping 1.5 alive, I think it's very much all to play for in the next couple of weeks. In terms of the obstacles that they need to overcome, you've touched on quite a few of them already. But how important do you think it is, for example, that we at time of recording, believe some of the major leaders, including President Xi and President Putin, won't actually attend. Is it possible to achieve real progress with such significant nations not in attendance? Well, I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist, and and that's very much one of the perspectives I bring in my recent book, Anthrovision. And one thing that anthropologists say is that rituals matter. And even if they seem to be entirely empty and full of all kinds of symbolism and rhetoric that doesn't match up or reflect real life, they still matter because they give a vision of where people want to go and what they think the ideal aspiration should be. So the reality is in the next two weeks, you're going to have a lot of rituals, which will seem empty in the sense they won't necessarily match up to real commitments or real life, but they do at least create a frame about where people want to go. It is very disappointing that President Xi and President Putin won't be there. Um, It's not that surprising because quite apart from the fact that if America doesn't come to Glasgow with any meaningful commitments, there won't be any pressure from China to produce any meaningful commitments. There's also the issue, aside from that, that President Xi isn't traveling anywhere right now. None of the Chinese officials are really traveling because of the quarantine restrictions around COVID-19. But it is very disappointing that they won't be there. Um, But there will be a plethora of rhetoric and symbolism, which hopefully post-COP will help frame the discussion and the um, dialogue going forward that will get more action. Fantastic. And that that lens you bring as a cultural anthropologist, I think is fascinating because normally when we look at cultures, we look at them in isolation. One of the things that's interesting about COP26, which is the biggest gathering of world leaders ever to take place in the UK, is that there are going to be so many differing perspectives on this issue. So you've got historic major emitters, including ourselves, who are arguably responsible for a lot of what happened post-industrial, if we're looking at comparison to sort of 1850, 1900. You've got currently major polluters like China, who even though the president won't be there, will be sending a major delegation, who are being asked to basically curtail their growing economies and improving living standards to solve a problem that they would argue is not of their own creation. And then you've got some of the smaller nations who are likely to be most affected, least part of the problem, and they haven't received the money that they've been promised ever since 2009. So a huge range of different perspectives and sort of cultures coming together in one place. How do you bring consensus in such a complicated situation? Well, that's a really good question. And one of the lessons we learned during COVID-19 is that you can't solve a problem like that just with computer science or medical science, you need to think about behavioral science as well, both in the sense of trying to work out how different countries can cooperate or not cooperate or coordinate um, over issues which are really global in their nature, but also about how you get populations inside different national regions to actually embrace whatever amazing medical science and computer science tools you have. I mean, you know, in COVID-19, it became very clear around vaccine hesitancy that if you couldn't beat that, if you can't beat that, you can't beat a pandemic. 
Um, and you have a very similar story around climate change, because unless you can find ways to think about incentives to create all the countries working together, you're going to find it very hard to actually meaningfully get climate change and buy in. Um, you know, so to cite one tiny example, I was chatting to people from the African um, groups the other day who are advising the United Nations on the energy matters, you know, and they're furious that, you know, well-meaning Western activists often say, well, the emerging market should embrace renewables. Um, that's the way they should go. They should leapfrog the West. They shouldn't be using fossil fuels, which makes perfect sense in theory if you're looking at it from a bird's eye engineering perspective. The reality is that, you know, Places like Nigeria feel pretty cross at being yelled at for using diesel generators when the entire continent of Africa, minus South Africa, um, has an energy usage which is less than Bitcoin most days. Um, they're simply not using a lot of energy. And for somebody to tell them to not build energy plants or electricity plants using fossil fuels in crisis because somehow they're seen as being responsible for what's going on, it feels very, very um, patronizing and irritating. So you have to get buy-in from different countries, and you also have to understand the incentives and cultural patterns inside different parts of the world and how messages are playing out or not playing out. And, you know, how can you get people to, say, embrace electric vehicles, to reduce their flying, to, you know, deal with cladding their houses in a more energy-efficient way? How can you impart those messages in a way that will actually resonate locally? It's not easy. It's not easy. And there's a great example in Anthrovision from the Ebola crisis, similarly, where uh, an assumption that the science was obvious and if people knew what to do, they would do what they were told didn't actually work. Approaching it top down and saying this is the truth and the way that you need to respond is actually not going to generate the response that we're after. Absolutely not. I mean, I've been watching Tucker Carlson in the last um, this weekend, the very popular American TV host who has just come out with these furious videos about saying how evil renewable energy is and how wind farms are basically the spawn of the devil. And that's a message which will seem shocking to most green activists and most of the people turning up in um, Glasgow. But the reality is, unless we start embracing and listening to what other people think who might seem different from us and actually listening with empathy, we're going to have very little chance of changing behaviour going forward. Couldn't agree more. Now, we've talked a lot so far about the sort of the nation state intergovernmental level, but you talked at the start, and I completely agree, about the, the importance of the role of business in actually supporting, shaping and driving this agenda forward. So tell us a little bit more about that from the perspective of our clients. What can and should they be doing in COP and beyond? Well, here's what business can do and here's what business can't do. Business cannot compensate for the failures of government in the sense that there are really important things that government has to do. And if government turns around and says that because we can't get our act together and agree on anything, we're going to demand more from business, that is grotesquely unfair and business could and should call out governments for doing that. And they should also, frankly, be lobbying government to get its act together. You know, I'm strongly of the view that the only way we're going to have significant change is by introducing carbon taxes and carbon pricing. Some companies have come out and are lobbying for that. Surprisingly, the fossil fuel industry is lobbying for that because they want a level playing field. Um, but, you know, business needs to recognize that there are certain things that they can't do. It's up to government to do. And they should be lobbying government to get on and do it ASAP. Um, but there are also things that business can do. And what business can do is to use its own resources and use its own capital 
to try to essentially steer their own companies um, and their own business activities towards a healthier, better outcome for the planet and for themselves. And it's important to stress that and for themselves is not arguing that actually what's good for a company will always be good for the planet, because that simply is not true. You know, it may be very good for a company short term to be digging up lots of coal right now, because guess what, they'll make money that way. It won't be good for the planet. But if you take a medium term perspective and you think that one, climate change is real, and two, that there are going to be regulatory reforms eventually that try and deal with it, like the introduction of a carbon tax, then actually thinking about what's good for the planet and what's good for you is certainly something which does go hand in hand. So actively trying to uphold good corporate values, trying to protect the environment, trying to prompt more public awareness, more employee awareness around those issues is very, very important. And last but not least, you know, people who say, well, ESG, environmental social governance stuff, is all about hippy-dippy activism, you know, and therefore I'm not interested. My role isn't to try and change the world. I'm just a business leader. Well, actually, the reality is that today ESG is about self-defense as much as activism. It's about protecting your company from reputational risks, regulatory risks, loss of employee risk, loss of investor risks, um, you know, all those kind of issues. And, you know, for that reason alone, companies should be thinking about these issues now. I agree. As someone who's been interested in and exploring this area since long before it was fashionable, it's actually really exciting to see us coming to what feels like a tipping point where actually, even if you don't necessarily morally align with it, it's not something that your grandkids are beating you up, which is a sort of classic CEO metaphor. It doesn't matter because now there's such a groundswell that you're at risk of being an outlier and you're at risk of being left behind. So it becomes just an essential part of doing business, which I think is increasingly encouraging. Um, one of the great scoops Moral Money had this year was talking to a former BlackRock uh, lead for ESG who talked about ESG as little more than greenwash. Mm-hmm. Finance is being held up as one of the sort of areas of breakthrough. There are unfathomable trillions now being put towards uh, sustainable investments. But there's an argument that this is a dangerous distraction from actually making change questions about how green that green finance is. What's your take on finance, um, which will be a really big focus of COP? Well, the um, BlackRock um, former official in question is called Tariq Fancy, a mm-hmm. um, very thoughtful person. Um, he worked at BlackRock for a number of years and then became very disillusioned by the whole ESG issues. Um, and he basically argued, you know, twofold. One is that they don't do what they say on the tin because the reporting is so fuzzy that you don't really know whether things are green or not. And his second big issue was that it's a placebo. And it's not just a placebo that has no effect. It actually is conning governments, or not conning, it's luring governments into essentially passing the buck and asking private sector to do what government should be doing. I have a lot of sympathy with, with both points. You know, there is far too much label confusion, um, far too much opacity, and far too much willingness around standards, point one. And then secondly, as I said earlier, it is absolutely the case that government should not be using ESG as an excuse for inaction or passing the buck to the private sector. There are things that government has to do. However, I would also argue that actually channeling money into green activity and green investments, which we do need right now, is a good thing. Um, Trying to tell investors that if you invest in a coal plant, 
yes, it might be good in the short term, but in the long term, you're probably going to see potentially stranded assets, problems like that. That's also a good thing. Telling investors that if you care about your planet and want to make sure the money's not being used to finance dirty activities, then I think that's also a good thing because investors should be choose. And there may be a group of investors that say, actually, my conscience tells me I don't want to invest in this stuff. You know, fantastic. Go for it. Um, but there may be others who simply say, I just want to make sure I don't lose money. Mm. And actually, that's also not so bad either. So I think Terry's got a point. But I think he actually misses the bigger picture, which is that it's not an either or. You don't need to have government or business. The best situation is to have what I call a three-legged stool. Government, business, and the nonprofit sector, philanthropic sector, all working vaguely in the same direction, trying to uphold a greener path. I agree. And I also think we can get into the business of worrying about exactly obsessively how green every one of those trillion pounds is when we've got a lot more finance going in the right direction. And for now, I'm happy to have a rising tide that's lifting most boats. Um, So we're thinking a lot about COP, but that is, of course, uh, a fortnight. We will be busy moving on to other things once it's done. We will have seen the photos, the handshakes, the 11th hour communique. Uh, It will be, I'm sure, hailed as a success by our hosts, whatever happens. But longer term... This idea of more of a shareholder capitalism model, more moral with our money, this role for business to kind of advocate on climate, is this a, in your view, a sustained shift or are we looking at a short-term fad and next year it will be well, supply? Business is always the business world always goes in cycles and fashion cycles. Um, we know that. That's part of being human. And what has happened is really starting in the summer of 2019, there was an explosion of interest and awareness amongst companies in ESG issues. You know, if you're looking for ritualistic moments, the time when the Business Roundtable in the US put out their statement embracing stakeholders, not shareholders, was a very symbolic moment where businesses were going, um, to use a phrase I use in my book, Anthrovision, they were going from tunnel vision, where they just looked at profits and shareholders, to lateral vision, where they realized that things that were beyond the balance sheet beyond their narrow economic models, beyond their obsession with shareholders and profits, when they realized they had to take note of the wider environment, stakeholders, that was a very important moment when ESG began to come onto the radar screen of companies. Um, What we saw in 2020 was actually COVID-19 accelerated that focus. It didn't diminish it. And it moved it away from being focused just on the environment, E, to the S as well, the social factor. What we're seeing in 2021 really is a shift away from the kind of why do I have to care about um, ESG to why not? If you don't have a strategy on this issue today, as a company leader, you look potentially vulnerable to being attacked. Um, And increasingly, people are now moving to the how. How do I actually do this? And as they move into the how, really, there's two things happening. One is that there's a backlash in the sense that people realize that the how is very tough. It's not clear cut. And there's a tendency, tendency of people to say, oh, it's just too impossible, we give up. There's also a backlash as people start to realize actually the how might be so significant that it's going to cost them a lot of money and that actually it may be going too far. And invariably, like any business cycle, you're beginning to see some pushback from some quarters. Um, so I fully expect that in the next two or three years, we'll see a push-pull on companies as some of them say, actually, or some shareholders say, actually, you're doing too much. 
companies are saying, well, you know what, I can't exactly stop it and just ignore this stuff now. Um, but I think the wider direction is really that going forward, no company is going to be able to simply ignore its environment or the social context. Um, and it's going to be increasingly embedded in how companies imagine their business. Um, you know, one interesting parallel is with the, t- the issue of technology. If you dial back, you know, three decades, tech was something that a tiny minority of people in a company did. You had a tech department and techies who were separate from what a board did or what most ordinary employees did. You know, you basically outsourced it and ring-fenced it to this tech team. Today, no CEO would dare to stand up and talk about strategy and say, oh, tech, it's not really my kind of stuff, don't care about it, it's boring, boom, boom, boom. It's kind of integrated into what the definition of business is. So I think going forward, that's kind of what ESG is going to be like as well. That makes a lot of sense. One thing I wanted to sort of explore, so in Anthrovision, we've talked about a couple of the ideas within that already. So moving from tunnel vision to lateral vision. The other idea that I was really interested in is the importance of listening to the social silence in a, in a moment and what is what is not said. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps you could tell us a bit more about that. That was a big part in how you're able to see the the uh, inherent sort of strangeness, really, of the securitization bubble that was emerging that then led to the financial crisis. What is the social silence now around climate? What should we be looking out for? Well, there are lots of social sciences around climate, um, like there are social sciences around every part of our world. You know, humans are hardwired to focus on noise and noise that the entire group decides is noisy and important and ignore really important things that are in our universe, in our ecosystem, but either seem too boring or geeky or dull or technical or inconvenient to pay much attention to. Um, and back in 2005 and six, in the financial sector, the noise in finance in the city of London was all about the equity markets and hedge funds and leveraged finance. And the silence was this boring, geeky, dull sector known as um, credit derivatives and you know derivatives in general, which ended up being very important. Um, this time round with climate, there's all kinds of silences. I mean, I would say one big silence is around the fact that with the best will in the world, if you are going to rely on renewables to get energy supply and to cut emissions, it's almost certainly not going to work. Because at the moment, barring any massive breakthrough in battery technology, renewables are just not reliable enough to provide constant source of energy supply. So you're going to have to either use gas, which is a bit dirty, or rely on coal for some of your energy transmission, which is very dirty, um, or you bring on board nuclear. Um, For what it's worth, I happen to think that nuclear is probably the least bad option. I think it's insane that we're mothballing or closing down so many nuclear plants. Um, You know, but the reality is that in places like New York and California right now, emissions are likely to rise and reliance on fossil fuels are likely to rise in the city I'm in right now, Manhattan, in the next couple of years because they're shutting down nuclear plants. And that is one big area of silence. Another area of silence is the inability of the West to provide the kind of aid that the developing markets need to make the transition. I said earlier that the entire continent of Africa, minus South Africa, uses less energy in a day than Bitcoin. So to sit there and point fingers at Africa and say, you shouldn't be using diesel generators, you shouldn't be even thinking about building fossil fuel plants, go green, is all well and good, but get real. You're going to have to provide money for them to do that. Um, 
Another area of silence is in America about the inability of the American government to embrace a carbon price, carbon tax. That's shocking in the sense that Janet Yellen wrote a fantastic paper 18 months ago saying we need a carbon tax, a carbon price. Now she's the US Treasury Secretary. They've backed away from it because of the political backlash they'd suffered by embracing that. So that's another you know, problem. Um, you know, more widely, the question of what consumers think about being the most effective way to cut their emissions is another area of silence. Wonderful bit of research done recently by the Behavioural Insights team in London, looking at what consumers think will help cut emissions and what will actually help cut emissions. And there's almost negative correlation because people don't understand that, you know, with the best will in the world, um, not having plastic straws, you know, is a very easy feel good thing to do. But in terms of emissions, almost nothing. Um, so, you know, these are the kind of areas of social silence which are manifold and which need to be talked about. I think that's totally right. And I think the the gap between the sort of pressure on consumers to do the right thing, wanting to feel that you're doing the right thing, wanting to sort of virtue signal, but in from a from a good place versus things like concrete, glass. There are so many industries that we choose not to think about because it's hard or it's complicated or we just don't have the voices that can tell us what's happening there, but actually their contribution is is enormous. The other area that I feel like was one of the sort of social silences on climate change, but is starting to change, is cost. Mm. And who is actually going to pay for this? So for a long time, because we weren't worried about the how, we were still working out whether or not we agreed to it, whether or not we could set a target in the first place, we didn't have to think about who would pay for it. But as we start to move to the how and people have to make real decisions, you also have to look at who's really going to pay for it. And I think that's going to be a continuing and growing source of tension as we're already seeing in some of the countries where they do have ambitious plans. So I think there's still, it feels like it's The topic is as big as it's ever been. And yet there's still very much we're only at the tip of the iceberg and there is a lot more ahead. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just looking at the chart right now. I mean, the survey suggests that basically people think that the things they can do most to, apart from plastic straws, to cut is to use less heating, make energy efficient houses, um, make products last longer. And, um, you know, these are the things that they regard as being most important. In fact, the things that will actually have the most impact would be sustainable diet, electric vehicles, to fly less and to drive less. So, And they're much harder. That Those are trickier choices, tougher swaps, bigger changes. Yeah. And that's that sort of way stacks it against us slightly. Really interesting. Gillian, thank you so much for your time. And I'm going to let you get back to the busy and all-consuming task of watching and tracking all that happens in COP, not to mention elsewhere in the world over the next couple of weeks. But before you go, the question we ask of all our guests is, how do you cut through the noise, step back and find a moment of clarity? Well, I'm a great believer in a principle that I lay out in my book of borrowing an idea found in anthropology, which is that it pays to be curious and it pays to jump out of your fishbowl. And what I mean by that is anthropology believes there's really a three-part process that drives a discipline that anyone can use. Step one, go plunge yourself even briefly in the minds and lives of people who seem different from yourself to get empathy for another point of view. Because guess what? That's important to actually understand other people in a globalized world where we're all exposed to each other. But it's also important to understand yourself because there's this wonderful um, proverb 
um, from China, which is that a fish can't see water. None of us can see the water we swim in each day, the assumptions that shape us, unless we actually jump out of our fishbowl, go swim with other fish, and then look back at ourselves. And when we do that, when we get that kind of insider-outsider perspective, we can not just see the noisy parts of our life, but the silence too. So what I try and do when I'm sort of beset with problems or trying to get clarity is to actively go and talk to someone's different, go and plunge myself into a corner of cyberspace that's outside my world, go and, you know, physically move, or I can't physically move, just go and do something completely different and get someone else's perspective and then look back at myself to try and see what I'm missing. Doesn't always work. I often forget to do it. When I forget to do it is usually when I do my weakest journalism. But I found that over many years that jumping out of your fishbowl you know, the 101 of anthropology and then trying to swim with other fish and look back at your own water and see what you're missing is the best way to understand what really matters and what the key things are in your world that you might be misunderstanding. It's a great tip. On a much smaller scale, if I could make one suggestion to cop watchers in the next fortnight, it's on a smaller scale, read the press that you don't normally read about this conference. Because if you go into it thinking this is going to be a waste of time, and you read the press that you always read, which probably shares your view, you're going to get the same answer. Similarly, if you're a climate committed, a passionate uh, fan, and you keep reading the same media that you always read, which probably reinforces that, you're going to come out with the same answer. It's really important on something as important as climate that we understand what the other side is thinking and how they're perceiving the same events as us. So I agree entirely. And actually, I spent the weekend looking at Fox Nation with Tucker Carlson, who's just done a whole series of programs about how evil wind farms are in his eyes. And that was a revelation to me, both about trying to understand a different mindset, but also thinking about what is it we're missing about wind farms. Exactly. No, I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes being released in the coming weeks.